Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Records because he wasn't he wasn't familiar with you, but uh, are you because you were just up in Whistler? I saw your your Instagram stuff. You were up running around up in the Pacific North, or you know, up there. Are yeah. You, are you back home in Phoenix now? Or where are you at? Yeah, I am. I got back on uh, Monday morning. I was up there. There, uh, if you're familiar, there's the those Spartan obstacle course races that have gotten really popular in the last right, decade, right. and they added a new component to it called Spartan Trail, and it's okay. like. Uh, it's like a 10 kilometer race through like all sorts of different terrain. And one of the guys, uh, Luis Escobar, who is like really one of the more like uh, well-known kind of figures in the trail running community has been helping them kind of design courses and set those things up. So uh, they had Nicole and myself come out there to help with that particular event up in Whistler. So we lucked out and got one of the more scenic places (laughs) to do that in. So we were, doing some exploring and stuff too. And, you know, one thing I didn't realize before I got there, but we ended up doing it was they have the world's biggest gondola. And it's like, I think it's like 2.75 miles and it takes you from one peak all the way to another one. And you've, it's like, so you're so high up, you almost look like you're in an airplane looking down as you're kind of landing. And it's just really weird to be like attached to this wire in this little car getting <laughs> trekked across on that thing. But um, yeah, we saw a lot. So that was kind of, kind of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty. So, and when are you heading out to Greece to do your, uh, do your 153 mile jaunt? Yeah, we leave Saturday morning. So in a few days, and then the race itself is that last Saturday in September. So we'll be out there for a little over two weeks and Nicole's her dad's side of the family all, all lives in Greece still. So we're going to check out some of the islands and things after it. So we're excited. Just got to get the 153 mile part of it done. Yeah, it sounds fun and beautiful. I love these degrees. I got to go. To, I got to go to. Uh, I'm going to Malaysia in about two weeks for for a week or so to bring the craziness of eating meat to the people in Malaysia. But anyway, let's get let's just start with Dr. Palmer. Dr. Chris Palmer, you are a psychiatrist at Harvard University. Uh, you've been uh, putting out what I find is some very interesting material. I've seen some of your YouTube stuff, and I've had a lot of people recommend. Uh, you know you know, your information. So would you mind briefly just giving us a little summary of your background so people know who you are and then we can kind of dig into this stuff? Sure. Yeah, no. So I'm a, um, so I am a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. I grew up in Indiana and I'm kind of, you know, a pretty down to earth, Midwest, middle class kind of a guy. I went to Purdue University for college I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth on, you know, unlike most people would think once you get to Harvard, like you've been a rich snob all your life. That's, I, I, I kind of wish that that had happened. And if I could go back and do it again, I would like have a silver spoon, but uh, that wasn't the life that I was given. And somehow they let me into Harvard anyway. And uh, so I've 
been here for about 25 years now. And um, I did my internship and residency here and I ended up staying. I've done a lot of different things in my position. So right now I'm the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education. So I basically put on educational conferences and other training programs and stuff for medical professionals. Um, I do research, I've done research in addiction. Uh, and right now my big thing is doing research in, with a ketogenic diet for psychiatric disorders. Um, I've been a clinician for the entire 25 years. So usually I work with kind of people who aren't getting better. And uh, so it's called treatment resistant cases. And so I get the people who've already seen like 10 other psychiatrists who've been hospitalized multiple times and who are like no better at all. And then they're like, oh, send them to Chris Palmer. Let's see if he can do anything with this. And uh, so those are the people that I work with. You know, I think the, this is kind of funny to me because it just seems so intuitively obvious that nutrition would have an impact on, you know, our mental well-being. You know, our brain is an organ just like any, you know, any other organ in the body, the liver, the kidneys, the, the, you know, the lungs, the muscles, you know. But, but for some reason, there's just a uh, belief out there that mental health diseases, whether it's depression, anxiety, you know, schizophrenia, uh, are, are, you know, completely isolated from from nutrition i mean there's this people out there says no there's no way you could you could help someone's depression by changing their diet i mean that that seems to be uh, a common uh you know paradigm out there can you speak to the to the to the relevance of, of nutrition in general on mental health disorders yeah no so it, it's a great question and quite honestly it's a really confusing topic for a lot of people and um, because part of it is kind of what, what you think of as cause and effect. Um, and so, you know, my, my work mostly right now is focused on this kind of huge thing that we call metabolism and how it relates to mental disorders. And there's no question that diet affects metabolism, but as you probably know, like hundreds of other things affect metabolism too. So temperature affects metabolism, whether you're stressed, whether you're getting good sleep. I mean, all sorts of things affect metabolism. And, um, you know, most people, when they think of metabolism, they think about two things. They either think about weight loss. So you either have a high metabolism, in which case you're skinny and you can eat a lot or you have a low metabolism, in which case you're fat and you're slow. And uh, so that's what most people think of when they think of metabolism. The, you know, and, and then the other camp are athletes. So people who really want peak performance, who want to improve their game, who want to run 100 miles and win like a world championship. Those, those, people, those people are interested in metabolism too because they know that like I've got to be cranking, my muscles have to be cranking out ATP. Like they need to be nonstop on fire, just go, 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 like fuel those muscles, make them work as fast as possible, as strong as possible. Um, but those are the two categories where people like start and end with metabolism. It turns out that metabolism is actually a ridiculously complicated thing 
it, it, but, but in a nutshell, it's basically about the cells in our body getting energy, producing energy, and whether the, and that determines whether your cells work right or not. Well, it turns out that the brain is a pretty complicated thing. And the brain is kind of like a supercomputer. Um, and just like a supercomputer, if you don't get the exact right amount of energy at the right time, it doesn't work right. And so like any supercomputer, you know, some circuits, you can't overload them because if you overload them, they're gonna blow. If you underpower them, they're not gonna work right. And so it ends up being this exquisitely fine-tuned energy kind of energy needs depending on what parts of the brain we're talking about and what your brain is trying to do but you know it so i'm really focused on this concept of metabolism or energy production and mental disorders and it turns out that although this probably sounds cutting edge and it sounds like, oh, this is new stuff. It's actually not new stuff at all. This stuff has been out for like since the 1960s. So since the 1960s, we have known that people with major mental disorders, so that includes things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, chronic depression, you know, severe crippling post-traumatic stress disorder, any of it. You look at any of those disorders, and if it's a chronic disorder, meaning it's lasting for years and years and it's not getting better, those people all have metabolic abnormalities in their bodies and in their brains. And you know there are all sorts of different ways that we measure metabolism. We look at lactate levels. So people with serious, you know, so athletes know this because if you get too much lactate, everybody always says lactate makes your muscles sore. If you work, you know, if you work out and you really work hard, you, you get, you go anaerobic for a while and that means you get lactate buildup and then it makes your muscles sore. Well, that same lactate stuff is found in the brains of people with chronic mental disorders. So that has been around for like 40, 50 years. People have known that for a long time. But we can now measure like levels of ATP in cells in relation to other kind of biomarkers. We can measure levels of inflammation in the brain and that's directly related to metabolism. We can measure levels of reactive oxygen species, which is just a big word for like a waste product of metabolism. Um, but all of these metabolic app kind of things have have shown in groups of people have been shown to be abnormal. And so I'm kind of looking at it, uh, looking at mental disorders from a very different perspective than most people usually think about them. So most people think about mental disorders as it's either mental, which means like it's in your head, you're just, you know, effed up, you, you need to stop whining and complaining, suck it up, be tough. Um, or, you know, people with like schizophrenia or Alzheimer's disease, especially really severe cases of those, we look at them and we're like, oh my God, that poor person, they're like really fucked. They're like there's, like they're, there's, you know, there's clearly something wrong with them. They, that's not just a, that's just not an issue of they need to suck it up. They, they, they're, they're really messed up. Like there's something wrong with them. 
but we don't know what to do for them. Um, and so that's what most people think of when they think of mental is it's either you're a whiny or, an, or a complainer or you've got like a really bad brain disorder and nobody knows what causes it. Maybe it's genetic, maybe it's something else. But usually people don't think about metabolism in either of those cases. They, they usually just think, you know, it's one or the other. Um, but it turns out even for people who have anxiety disorders, even for people who have mild cases of depression, if it lasts for a long time, they have all of these disturbances in metabolism that we can detect. Um, and uh, it, ends up, it, it ends up getting even more complicated than all that because you know we we have these we have these illnesses in medicine that we call metabolic illnesses you know from metabolic syndrome and they include things like obesity diabetes and heart disease and those are all considered metabolic illnesses now a lot of people in the keto community a lot of people in low carb community want to add cancer to that list. They want to add Alzheimer's. They want to add all sorts of things to that list. But I think without being controversial at all, everybody knows obesity, diabetes, and heart disease or you know, strokes, that those are all metabolic disorders. Well, it turns out that people who have mental disorders, these things that we call mental disorders, are at much, much higher risk of having any one of those three things. So people with mental disorders, whether it's depression, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, they are much more likely to end up becoming obese, developing diabetes, and dying of a heart attack or a stroke at a very young age. And in fact, when we look at people who have really serious mental disorders, so those are the ones that are very chronic, usually they're, you know, uh, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and chronic depression. Um, when we look at those people, they lose about 20 to 25 years of their lifespan on average. That's... Well that's like a third of their life that they die early. That's a shocking statistic. Let me ask you, um, cause you said we have the capacity to, to measure brain inflammation, metabolic markers of the brain. How do we, I mean, how are we doing that now in absence of, of biopsies? Because I, I don't, don't imagine people are signing up for brain biopsies pretty, huh. pretty, pretty regularly. So how are we, how are we actually measuring this and realizing that most people that are treating most of these mental health diseases are primary care physicians, they probably have no clue. Uh, so how are, you, how are you quantifying, you know, this guy has brain inflammation or this guy has ATP problems in his brain or so on and so forth? How is that being done actually? So right now there's nothing that we can do clinically for the most part. So in other words, th these are all from research studies looking at like 100 people with schizophrenia or 100 people with Alzheimer's disease and comparing it to 100 people who are quote unquote normal. And, and we see significant differences between the two groups. But the differences aren't, aren't 
um, aren't dramatic enough that we can like run a diagnostic test, at least not yet. People are working on this, but most of those studies are done through brain scans. So we have, we have various kind of brain scans that we can do, MRIs, functional, so these are functional MRIs, or these are like um, MRS, which is magnetic resonance spectroscopy, big mouthful, but it, um, they're, they're basically brain scans that takes kind of pictures of your brain over a very rapid, quick period of time. And at the same time that you're getting this scan, somebody's usually injecting you or having you swallow a, a tracer molecule, which, um, which will help us figure out like, Th all these different metabolic markers. Um, some of these things can be done without any tracers at all. And we basically, you know, it's a complicated biochemistry thing, but they do this analysis on the brain scan and they can sometimes tell like what molecules are what um, in a certain part of your brain. The, the problem is that this research is, you know, in early days, it's only you know, maybe 10, 20 years old, really. And so it's primarily for research. Um, and, uh, but it, it's showing us definite differences in the brains of these people. One of, the, one of the big areas that a lot of people, you know, some people are talking about now with Alzheimer's disease is this whole thing of insulin resistance. Um, you know, we know that insulin resistance, it's kind of the definition of diabetes. We know that insulin resistance is associated with people who are obese. We also know that a lot of people who have heart attacks and strokes have signs of insulin resistance. It turns out that a lot of people who have mental disorders, especially the serious chronic ones, also have insulin resistance. That insulin resistance, interestingly, isn't always found you know, in, in their like arm. Like if you take a blood sample from their arm, you may not see it. But when we do brain scans, we do see it. And so, you know, for a long time, people thought that the brain doesn't need insulin. The brain doesn't even use insulin. Turns out that the brain does use insulin. And, um, and we now have pretty good evidence that sometimes the brain gets insulin resistant. And when the brain gets insulin resistant, you know, in really simple layman's terms, it kind of doesn't work right. And the not working right could be as simple as like the part of your brain that's supposed to make you feel full doesn't feel full anymore. Like you can eat and eat and you don't feel full. And so what do you do? You keep eating. Um, but it also affects a lot of other parts of your brain, like maybe the parts of your brain that control your mood, maybe the parts of your brain that control, um, you know, whether you have hallucinations or not. It, it, it does all sorts of stuff. Chris, I think like just listening to what you said here, it's like it, it gets kind of clear, I think, to a lot of people listening that there's, there's so many different ways to maybe target these situations. Um, and I'm just thinking like in particular, like someone who struggles with depression or something like that, you know, the first 
thought maybe to someone on looking who doesn't have that situation or experience with that situation will think, well, you know, clean up your diet, get some exercise, form good social relationships. And a lot of that'll clear up, which is kind of easier said than done for someone who's in a situation where they may struggle to get out of bed because they're so depressed. Is there something that is more like, I don't want to say low hanging fruit because by the time they get to you, there is no more low hanging fruit. But uh, is there something that is kind of like the first plan of action that you try out when you're working with someone like that? Or is it very much down to the individual level by that point? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it, it ends up depending on, you know, how bad the situation is. So certainly if somebody, um, if somebody's not able to really function, if they've let it go on for so long that they, you know, they have a trouble getting out of bed, they're showing up late for work, or maybe they got fired, you know, they're not working now. They're, so those people are in a different camp and they, they're going to need a different intervention. And certainly medications can play a role for them if we have to go that route. Um, psychotherapy can play a role for that if that makes sense. Um, but diet and exercise can also definitely play a role. But like you said, if, if the person's let it go on for so long, or it's not even, I don't mean to blame them because sometimes it's out of their control. Sometimes it just like comes on and before they know it, they're severely depressed and they're incapacitated. Um, uh, you know, once people get severely depressed, asking them to exercise is is almost futile. It, um, it, we, we know we have really good data that uh, both diet and exercise can help improve depression in people. Um, we actually have some data that both diet and exercise can help people with schizophrenia. So there's like a whole range of diagnoses which it, which it can help people, but it, it, it ends up being that there are lots of different causes for mental illnesses. And so um, th this is one of the things that I really wanted to kind of be able to just say is, you know, so I'm talking about the ketogenic diet for mental illness. And, um, and we can definitely get into more details on that. But uh, um, most of the time when people hear that, they think what I'm really saying is that a bad diet caused their mental problem and that they must have been eating whatever. They must have been eating a lot of shit. They must have been eating a lot of junk food and that, that high junk food diet caused their whatever, their depression, their schizophrenia, their anxiety disorder. Um, and for depression, we have a little bit of evidence to say that that's true. So we know that people who eat a lot of sugar and we know that people who eat a lot of junk food, if we, if we kind of look at them at one point in time and they're not depressed yet, and we follow them for 10 years, the people who eat a lot of sugar and the people who eat a lot of junk food were found to be more likely to develop depression. But we definitely can't say that that's true for diagnoses like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Um, we, we don't have really good, credible evidence that, for instance, schizophrenia is due to a bad diet. Um, and yet, I'm using a diet 
to treat some of those people. So now a lot of people are like, well, wait, that doesn't, that's, you know, that doesn't make sense. Like, what are you talking about then? And so the easiest example that I rely on is epilepsy. So we know that the ketogenic diet can stop seizures in people. And some of the people who develop seizures are infants. And some of those infants are actually born with a genetic mutation. It, and that's why they're seizing. Their seizures weren't caused by a bad diet. Nobody was feeding them junk food in a bottle. Nobody was, nobody was neglecting them. They weren't putting sugar in their formula or, you know, mom, it's not like only fat moms who are eating a lot of junk food or having babies with epilepsy. Some really nice, good, smart, hardworking, good diet, athletic people end up having kids with epilepsy. Nobody, it's, it's not the diet at all, yet putting them on the ketogenic diet can stop their seizures. And, and so, um, so I look at some dietary interventions or nutrition interventions, especially things like low carb or ketogenic diets. Um, I look at those, at least in some people for some indications, really more like metabolic interventions, as opposed to like, we're going to switch your bad diet to a good diet. Um, and, uh, and lo and behold, it, sometimes those metabolic interventions can really help and can make all the difference. And Chris, we've, you know, and maybe you can verify this, but I, I think I read something around, you know, looking at, you know, the, the incidence or the prevalence of mental health disorders, you know, World War II or even slightly before that was a certain level and it has gone up significantly, you know, over the last, you know, 50, 100 years. Is there any truth to that? Or is it just we're, we're, we're casting a wider net? And, you know, I know a lot of people talk about, well, we're just, we're just naming everything. Some just, you know, everything goes in the, uh, you know, the DSM-4. You know, it's now, uh, you know, every, every little nuance of human personality becomes a mental health disorder. Is there actually a true increase in the, in the incidence of mental health disorders over, in recent times? Or is that just an artifice of what we're calling mental health disorders? Yeah, no, Sean, that's a great question. It, so um, it turns out that there are skyrocketing rates of mental disorders. Um, so f like you said, for we, we've kind of noticed this trend for several decades now. Um, and uh, most people were kind of blowing it off. Most people assumed, oh, it's we're we're, you know, we're recognizing people with mild disorders. We're, we're decreasing the stigma so that if you have an anxiety disorder, you don't have to suffer in silence anymore. You, you can get treatment. If you have mild depression, you should get treatment for it. Um, so for a long time, people kept saying that. And, and then, you know, especially with all of the antidepressants and mood stabilizers and anti-anxiety medicines and everything else that pharmaceutical companies are putting out, everybody, a lot of people thought, oh, this is all, these are all artifacts of the pharmaceutical companies. They're just pushing pills. They just, they just want to sell their pills and they put ads on TV. Do you suffer from this, this, this? Oh, ask your doctor if this pill is right for you. And, you know, and you're supposed to go and, take a pill. And of course, they're making out like bandits. It's a multi-billion dollar business. And 
So a, a lot of people thought, you know, it's just all driven by the pharmaceutical companies. And then other people, you know, think, well, you know, demise of society, society sucks. Everybody's, you know, everybody's on their cell phone. People know more about interacting with each other on their cell phone than they do like looking each other in the eye and actually having a conversation. Um, everybody's busy, everybody's stressed, you know, work, 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 work. Everybody's working all the time because we've got our cell phones. We're on, you know, emails 24 seven. We're on, if you're trying to like run a podcast series or something, you're probably on social media a lot. And you're like, then you got all these people trashing you on, and, and, you, and you got to deal with all that shit. And you know, you got all these people like calling your names and, yeah, all that stuff. And so maybe that's the reason everybody's all depressed and anxious and stuff is, is because of society. But in the last 20 years, we now have really good evidence. And we have good evidence because the same people who did the studies 20 years ago redid them. And they went door to door to people's houses. They didn't look at mental health clinics. They didn't look at primary care office. They went door to door and they asked people all these detailed questions about, do you have an anxiety disorder? Do you have depression? Have you been suicidal? Have you tried to kill yourself? All these kind of questions. And what we now know is that we have an epidemic of mental disorders in society. So anxiety disorders are up it's about 30% in adults. If you talk to any teacher, whether it's at the elementary school level, the high school level, or the college level, they are beside themselves. The young generation is like seeing ridiculous out of control levels of anxiety disorders, depression, hurting themselves, trying to kill themselves but sometimes not trying to kill themselves, just cutting themselves to kind of release their anguish. I mean, they're doing all sorts of stuff. And the educators, like especially the ones who've been around a while, they're like, something's going on here. This is, this is, this is not normal. This, something is really messed up. When we look at depression, dep major depression is now the leading cause of disability in the world. There are more people, and definitely in the United States, so there are more people who are unable to go to work and pay taxes because of major depression than, than there are people who are unable to go to work because they have cancer or because they had a stroke or because they had a heart attack or anything else. So major depression is now the leading cause of disability the latest statistic was about 13%. One, 3% of the United States population is currently taking an antidepressant. Um, when we look at the, the mental disorders that everybody assumes are genetic, or they're like, these are like the real disorders. There's no, you know, th these aren't anxiety, depression. Again, those are the wimpy people. Those are the complainers. Everybody's just complaining. When we look at the, hardcore, unequivocal diagnoses, autism. So autism is up 300% in about 15 years. And when we look at bipolar disorder, it's 
shocking. So with bipolar disorder, the rates in the last 15 years have doubled in adults, but among kids and adolescents, the rates have gone up 4,000%. It's a 40-fold increase. And in that statistic was just 10 years. And a lot of people are like, oh, but you're overdiagnosing everybody. It's all the pharmaceutical companies. It's, you know, so, so here's the real kind of litmus test. Suicide. What about suicide? Because that's not, that's not black and that's not like gray. That, that's, that's black and white. That's like, if you off yourself, like there's something wrong. There's no mild depression then. There's, there's, we, we, we can't be equivocal about suicide rates. And suicide rates over the last 15 years are up 30% across the board. But if we, if we look at a bigger measure of people dying by their own hand, and so there's this statistic that people call deaths of despair. And it includes people who commit suicide, but it also includes people who die of overdoses. So they die of an opioid overdose or they die of alcohol poisoning or something else. So those deaths are up 100% over the last 15 years. So the rates have doubled of deaths of despair. And again, those, those aren't an overdiagnosis. Those aren't just somebody whiny, complaining. I mean, maybe they're whiny, complaining while they're offing themselves, but like, you know, I think they're pretty serious when, when, they, when they go take their own life. And so, so we have these epidemics in society and most people, again, are blaming the things that I mentioned. They're blaming, oh, well, society, everybody's got a cell phone or, you know, pharmaceutical companies, those evil villains are out to just sell everyone pills or whatever. But I can't help but notice that, oh, gee, if we look at the population of the world, is there anything else going on? Any other epidemics happening at the same time, at the exact same time? Oh, gee, wait, wait, look. Obesity rates are skyrocketing. Obesity is sky. Oh, and what about diabetes? Oh my God, that's skyrocketing too. I mean, the latest statistics are almost, you know, anywhere from 35 to 50% of the United States population is either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And I actually am one to say, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think mental disorders are in fact skyrocketing because I think they're directly linked to all of those metabolic problems. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with you at all. I mean, it's 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 truly shocking to me the statistics you're putting out there. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I mean that that really just sort of kind of really drives the nail home a little bit. But you know, and this is interesting, you know, because as you probably know, I, I I kind of been an advocate of a kind of an unusual diet where people are just basically eating a meat based diet. But what I am seeing, one of the more common things I'm seeing, and obviously that has a pr- profound effect on metabolism, is that there is a very high number of people that do seem to resolve uh, mood disorders. I mean, I've seen anxiety, I've seen depression, I've seen uh, bipolar disorder, I've seen uh, people with, uh, you know, even, even you know, science, not necessarily autism being cured, but, but some of the perseverations and some of the problems, thought, thought problems that, that manifest themselves during autism. I mean, I have an autistic son, so I'm very clearly aware of that particular one. So I'm seeing uh, just, you know, you know, even like things, post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, I'm seeing these things all improve by changing diet. I mean, I'm just wondering if you have a similar experience and what, 
what does uh, you know your preliminary work in this sort of indicate? What what things are potentially amenable to diet, and what things may not be when it comes to mental health disorders? Yeah. So, uh, great questions. Um, so, you know, that's I, I'm seeing it too. So, um, so this work for me kind of it started you know 20 years ago. I I was on a low carb diet 20 years ago, and you know, that at that time it was called the Atkins diet. There were tons of people who kind of, even in the Atkins diet movement, there were tons of people who were carnivore. Um, a, a lot of people kind of knew if you, if you really want to lose weight, if you really want to get ripped, if you really want to whatever, eat no carbs, not just low carb, eat no carb. And what is no carb? That That's carnivore. That is, you know, eat a lot of meat and fish and poultry and eggs and maybe some cheese, but you know, you still got to limit dairy. You can't have too much and you don't really have nuts. You don't have fruits or vegetables. You don't have anything else. And so well, that, that's kind of the definition of carnivore. So, I mean, that's, it's been around for a while. So I, you know, I definitely noticed dramatic effects on myself. I, I started it because I had all of the signs of metabolic syndrome. My, my blood pressure was up, my, my bad cholesterol was bad, my good cholesterol was bad, my triglycerides were through the roof, like everything was bad. And, um, and I had been on a low fat diet, I was pretty disciplined on my low fat diet. I was eating like almost no fat sometimes. I'd, I'd get like two or three grams of fat a day why? Because the doctors were telling me that's what you got to do. If you want to take care of yourself, eat a low fat diet. And I was exercising pretty regularly. And so I did that. And, you know, push came to shove after several years of that. And the doctor's like, okay, Chris, you got to go on meds. And I was like, you know, well, I'm going to do this one radical thing, like just on an off chance that it might help. Because I've heard through the grapevine, these these crazy people doing this Atkins diet and it somehow they were eating eggs every morning. And at that point, eggs were vilified still like egg. Oh, they're, Oh, they're bad for your cholesterol. They're bad for everything. So don't eat any eggs. And I'm like, okay, you know, screw it. I'm going to try it, see what happens. And so I go ahead and do the Atkins diet, which at the time was ketogenic for me as well. I definitely went through phases where I was eating no carbs. So I was pretty much carnivore. Um, and, uh, and it absolutely, within three months, all my numbers got better. My blood pressure was coming down. All my metabolic abnormalities were corrected. The doctor's like, oh my God, whatever you're doing, it's awesome. Keep it up. Um, one of the things that I noticed just personally is that I felt a lot better. I had more energy. I had more motivation. And it wasn't like I was clinically depressed at the time. It wasn't that I, uh, you know, I, I was, I had just finished medical school. I was doing my internship and residency. I was pretty hardworking, pretty disciplined. Um, but, you know, but it was work. Like all of it was work. Like I'd come home at the end of the day and I'd lay on the couch and I'd fall asleep while I'm watching TV and having my low fat treats. <laughs> and, or, and, and, uh, and 
you know, so that started to change for me. I started getting this energy where I'm like, I'm going to go out for a run just for the fun of it. Like, and that, that would have never happened before. Like, why would I run for fun? There were all these people who were like, work hard, play hard. And I would always look at them like, why the hell do you want to play hard? Like, isn't life hard enough already? Like, we're working our asses off. We're like so tired. We're exhausted all the time. Who the hell wants to play hard? I want to play by laying on a beach and sleeping and, you know, and eating something. It's like, that's, that's my idea of playing. Well, somehow I turned into this person who's like this work hard, play hard kind of person. And so like I exercise for fun. I really don't want to go without exercise for more than a day or two because I just feel like shit. I, I don't, yeah, I'm like, I've got to get my energy out. I got to do something. And, um, and so I started using this diet in people who were, who had treatment resistant depression, maybe 15 years ago. And I was definitely finding, uh, I mean, there were a few cases that were really striking that it was, it was, they had tried everything, including shock therapy, 30 different medications, all sorts of psychotherapy, hospitalization, like all sorts of stuff. They had tried everything and nothing was working for them. And I saw several of them get better with this low carb keto diet. Um, at that point, I really wasn't willing to like come out of the woodwork. I had my good gig at Harvard and I, you know, I was pretty conservative. Atkins diet, low carb keto, that's all quackery. I, I didn't want to go out on a limb and like risk everything and do anything. And then, and then that all changed like three and a half years ago. So one of my patients that I had known for a long time, schizophrenia, he had tried everything. He was on tons of medicine. He was disabled by his illness. So, and he was schizophrenic. If anybody has ever known anybody with schizophrenia, it's a pretty debilitating illness. It, you know, people are hallucinating, they're hearing voices or, you know, they, they're delusional. They think everybody's after them. They, they have trouble going out into public. They definitely have trouble interacting with people. They're almost always unemployed. Most of them are. Um, and I don't mean to be disparaging in that way. And for those who have schizophrenia and can work, all the power to them. I'm not trying to put you down. But, um, but most people are really disabled by their illness. And, um, and they're suffering all the time, every day. Um, a lot of people with schizophrenia end up killing themselves. You know, some studies find that like 40 to 50% of them will at least try to kill themselves at least once because they're that miserable. I mean, they're, they're just miserable. And, um, and so this guy wanted to lose some weight. And so I put him on the keto diet and, uh, and lo and behold, over the next three months, there was like this radical transformation in him, something that I had never seen in the 10 years I'd been treating him. And we had tried lots of medicines, lots of different treatments, nothing else had worked. And he started coming to life but equally importantly, he was like just spontaneously letting me know my hallucinations are kind of going away. The, those, you know, that, those paranoid delusions that I've been having for years, they're going away. Like, like something's happening to me and I'm getting a lot better. So fast forward three and a half years, this guy's lost 150 pounds now. 
He's still on the diet. He's still my patient. He's not, he's not cured, unfortunately. Um, but there are some people who are, for all intents and purposes, seem to go into, I won't say cure, but I'll say they go into a full remission. And a lot of them have to stay on the diet. They, so there's one 70-year-old woman. She's now 82. So she, she was a chronic paranoid schizophrenic. She was disabled by her illness, miserable, had had it since she was a teenager, was obese, had a guardian. She couldn't take care of herself. She went on a diet, um, ketogenic diet, and uh, to lose weight, that was the whole goal initially. And she ended up 12 years later now, she's lost 150 pounds as well. She got, she got rid of the guardian. She got rid of all the supports. She takes care of herself now. She's independent. She, um, she has no symptoms at all. And she's off all her meds, everything. She doesn't take any medication for anything. And you know, she's in full remission. She still stays on a low carb or keto diet. So I can't say it's a cure because a cure, I guess, would be you can eat whatever you want and still not have symptoms. But, um, but it's pretty damn good. And so, so now I've, I've been hearing from people all around the world and we're, we're doing a lot of different types of research studies. So I'm working with some Australian um, uh, uh, researchers who've been doing animal studies of this. Um, there are animal models of schizophrenia in mice and in rats. And so they're doing those research studies and it's shown to be effective. Um, and I'm working with a lot of clinicians um, and researchers all over the place to try to do clinical trials now in people with bipolar disorder, people with schizophrenia. Um, now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Chris, um, I kind of want to get your thoughts on something because I, when I think of all of this, like I think like one of the biggest hurdles I see, and I could be wrong about this, so feel free to correct me, but when, when we look at kind of like when a lot of this stuff that we've talked about starts kind of taking shape, I think of like, you know, kids in the middle school to high school range where, like you said, they have access to the social media. So in the past, like you go to school, maybe you get bullied, but you always can go home and kind of separate yourself from it or surround yourself with a couple of close friends who are going to you know, more or less be nice to you. And there's, there's a, there's an outlet, whereas now you have the social media stuff. So you could end up getting bullied 24 seven. You could have negative experiences with your peers 24 seven. And then on top of it, you add that nutritional component 
and why the reason I think that middle school high school range is important here is because you you're kind of too young to make high quality decisions nutritionally but you're also got this bit of autonomy that you didn't have in the past where you're separated from your family uh, during the day and you have this option to make bad food choices and you're very susceptible to do that at that age. I, when, when I was teaching, it was very obvious, you know, kids would just walk over to the gas station, buy sodas and candy and all sorts of stuff, or they'd go to a vending machine right on the school premise and buy that type of stuff. And no one's there to stop them. Uh, so it's like, trying to kind of navigate that time frame where they're impressionable and they're also kind of building this structure for the decisions they're going to be making when they do become adults. I just see it as putting them in a real negative point where they're, they're not armed with the resources they would need to make good decisions down the road. And on top of it, there's very little in our educational system that would like teach them about our food systems and get them direct experience with our food systems and things like that. So there's just a lot, a lack of knowledge on that side of things too. Um, and we talked about this a little bit when we had Professor Eichert on a couple episodes back, or it might've been in the last episode. And my thought was like, well, what would happen if we would start making like our food systems more of a focus of our education at the primary level, where instead of looking at things like math, reading, writing, science in isolation, why not have like a, like a community farm where you tie the math, the science, the reading, the writing into that, 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 that food system thing. So, so kids are learning this important skills, but they're learning it alongside, you know, you know, food and like real food versus kind of Franken food more or less. Is that something like, what are your thoughts about that? I guess, just in general. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think those are great ideas and uh, you know, I'm, a huge fan of all of that. I, I think the biggest challenge we have is, you know, nutrition information. I'm not even going to call it nutrition science. I'm going to call it nutrition information. Nutrition recommendations. As much, as much as everybody wishes and hopes it was all based on good science, it's actually not. It, it, it ends up like so many other things in life. It's a political battle. It's politics. And, um, and so what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, people, people get these notions, they have their biases. They, they kind of think that, you know, they've been taught for a lot of years. Well, low fat diets, that's, those are good for you. Whole grains, what's not to love about whole grains? You know, these, these, uh, this box of Wheaties or this box of Cheerios or these goldfish snacks, it, they say low gra whole grain on them. They do. It says whole grain. So the doctor told me I should eat whole grain. So that's what we're eating. And, and they end up eating that stuff. And, and we have the epidemics we've got. Um, you would think that, you know, those kind of dietary recommendations would be based on the best science that we have. And, you know, for your listeners who don't know this, like the best science that we have, like the, it, it kind of is really easy to kind of outline the best science. So 
science starts with anecdotal case reports. So those are the bottom of the barrel. Next are like case reports that get published in the literature. And those take a step up because somebody's taken the time to like present a pretty convincing case that like, no, this was real. This, nothing else changed. We only changed this one variable and this person got better from a chronic illness or something. And then you go to, then you go to like epidemiologic studies, which look at maybe sometimes even large groups of people, but all you find is an association. You find correlations, but you don't really find cause and effect. So you find correlations. And then the gold standard in medical science, at least, and it should be in nutrition science too, are these randomized controlled trials where I take two groups of people who are pretty much identical or very similar to each other. And I, I put one group on a low fat diet and I put another group on a low carb diet, say. And, and let's like test it and let's like really see which one is better. Like which group ends up losing more weight or being happier or performing better athletically. It doesn't matter what you want to study, but you can study any of it. But um, so it turns out that we've actually got all of those types of evidence in nutrition, quote unquote, science. But whenever they make the dietary guidelines, they ignore all the randomized controlled trials. They ignore them. Why? Because they all say that low carb and or high fat diets are better for people than a low fat, high grain, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of everything else. Um, and so people keep ignoring it. So unfortunately, the, the kind of idea that you suggest, that like we should do more nutrition science in schools, we should have people work on a farm. Unfortunately, they're gonna like have them farm wheat and, and corn and, and like have them, like those are better than probably the processed junk food that they're eating. But I don't know that it's gonna be a lot better because all that wheat and corn is gonna be genetically modified and they're gonna use pesticides on it to kill all the bugs and they're gonna, I mean, so it's not clear to me that those kids are really going to be better off. Um, and if we go with the dietary guidelines right now as they are, unfortunately, it means that the pro, you know, until we start paying attention to randomized controlled trials, and again, we, we have them, they're out there. Any, any, any person can Google it and you can find them. They're available yet our dietary guidelines ignore them all. Um, and all the while, everybody sits around complaining about how everybody's getting fat and lazy and depressed and anxious and bipolar and autistic and what the hell's going on? Why isn't somebody doing something? And we just turn a blind eye to the obvious evidence that is already there. We don't need more. We've already got it. It's been published in the best journals we've got. And yet people don't want to change. And so I kind of feel like it's a political battle. And like with all political battles, it's kind of like Republicans versus Democrats. It gets nasty. It gets awful. And even, you know, within groups, Republicans versus Republicans or Democrats versus Democrats. That, that shit gets nasty. People get downright vicious. And all of those fights, I think, I think everybody knows, those fights aren't about who's the smartest. 
those fights aren't about who's right or who's wrong. Those fights are about, I want power, I want money, I want control, and you can't have it, and I don't care who you are. And so unfortunately, our nutrition science is also a political battle. And right now, I think the low-carb, keto, carnivore communities are kind of like fringe third-party candidates. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have big bucks coming in. We, we don't have a lot of support. We don't. People are still seeing this community as kind of quackish or fringe or whatever. And, you know, at the end of the day, especially when I see people's lives being transformed, when I see people who are disabled and suffering every day and trying to kill themselves, and then I see them get dramatically better, like I'm in this for them. I, I'm like, I, I will be a political you know, person. I've never liked politics. I don't really like getting trashed on social media. I don't like, you know, having people yell at me and spit in my face. I don't want anybody coming after my license. Um, but, but I'm kind of like, this needs to happen. And, and it is a battle and it's a political battle. Um, and we have to do it because the alternative is to just sit idly by and watch everybody get sicker and sicker and more and more miserable. Um, but in an ideal world, or maybe for a private school or something, to come back to your point, absolutely. I think that we should definitely be talking about nutrition with kids. We should be talking about nutrition with medical students. We should be talking about it with everybody. It's a huge battle. Like before I can blindly say, yeah, let's do that. I'm, I'm worried that the wrong advice is going to be given to everybody. And if they all get the wrong crappy advice, nothing's going to change. And it's going to be a lot of energy and effort and dollars put into something that's worthless. I mean, so many government agencies, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, you know, presidents' wives have done initiatives. Let's help America lose weight. Let's help America exercise more. Let's, I mean, I, everybody's doing this stuff. And I have to believe most of them actually do have really good intentions. They really actually want to help. They, they look around too and they're like, oh my God, this is awful. This is like, what's, what's happening to the American public? Like, I got I to gotta do something. I'm, I'm in a leadership position. I, I better do something for these people. And, and I tend to think more often than not, those people's hearts are in the right places and, and they, they're trying their best. But, you know, I'm a big fan of common sense. And common sense says, if you try something over and over again, and it doesn't work, maybe the thing you're trying is wrong. And, and uh, you know, it's, there's a joke about, you know, people who try the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. That's kind of the definition of insanity. I would say that our current dietary guidelines are the definition of insanity. We just keep issuing the same damn guidelines over and over again with almost no changes and somehow expect 
that the American public is going to lose weight with those guidelines. Um, yeah, Chris, I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of maddening to see that. And I think in my view, I mean, the, the, the science, the, the nutritional evidence that we have out there, I mean, it, it really, I mean, I think it's just a financial decision. These guidelines are basically represent financial interests is basically at the end of the day, I think it's what's, what's ultimately happening behind the scenes. I'm sure the lobbying, you know, dollars and, and, and so on and forth, so forth are actually dictating these policy more than the evidence. I mean, we see that, uh, um, you know, I, I think Nina Teichholz has shown that, you know, some people say, well, it's, it's not the guidelines that are wrong. So people, no one's adhering to them. But I mean, we've seen looking at, you know, food availability and loss adjusted averages that people by and large are trying to follow the guidelines. I mean, they're, they're eating more fruits and vegetables or eating less, you know, saturated fat. They stopped eating as much butter. They stopped eating as much red meat. I mean, we've seen that those trends happening. So the, the people are actually following the guidelines and the the food companies are supporting the guidelines by producing all this you know low fat food you remember the snack wells and all the other stuff that people use as the kind of the low, low fat joke food but i mean that that's that's occurred and despite our shift towards being more compliant with the guidelines we're, we're not seeing those results um i want to ask you just to bring it back to more of the the you know more in, in more narrow focus when you are seeing patients uh, and, and your 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 assumption is, or some of your working hypothesis is, a lot of this mental health disease, disorder is due to perhaps deranged metabolism. And so there's ways that you know we can't do an fMRI on everybody or an MRS or something like that. You've got you know basic there's basic metabolic markers we can look at you know insulin levels we can look at uh, you know inflammatory markers so on and so forth. Uh, you know, there was an interesting study about, I think last year came out showing carnitine deficiency, a relative carnitine deficiency associated with major depressive disorder. And we know that people that just don't eat a lot of meat in their diet have lower carnitine levels. And so, I mean, how are you, how are you, in addition to, you know, I don't you know what tools you have, maybe, you know, Beck depression index or something like that. I mean, you have ways to assess when your patients are getting better, but how are you correlating the metabolic markers and the other clinical metrics for seeing if mental health disorders are getting better or are you doing that or can you talk about that a little bit yeah so i um you know so so it, it depends on what hat i'm wearing so the research that we're going to be doing is definitely going to be doing fancy mrs scans and all sorts of you know metabolic markers from the bloodstream and stuff to, and then putting people on a ketogenic diet and kind of measuring everything before and then right at the end um, while they're still on the diet. And then seeing, did their symptoms get better? And if their symptoms got better, did any of these metabolic markers also get better? So that, that I, I'm really hopeful that that kind of research is going to change the dialogue and it's going to be like a political secret weapon um, because hardcore science like that people can't argue with changes in your brain and putting them on a certain diet and seeing them go from disabled to not disabled like nobody can argue with that and uh and i'm i'm really hoping that 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 kind of research is going to start to change the game a bit. Um, and once, you know, even though we don't have clinically available um, 
metabolic markers right now for just an average person who wants to measure something. Um, uh, people are working on that. And I think within the next 10 years, we're going to have it. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Dr. David Ludwig here at Harvard. So he, he's actually doing the largest weight loss study ever done in the United States. He got a $12 million grant from the government. He basically took all of these heavy people, um, made them lose a certain amount of weight, in order to get into the study. And then he locks them up for three months and he feeds them all a specific diet. And you get one of three diets. You either get a low carb keto diet or you get, um, I think it was the Mediterranean diet or a low fat diet. And they're all the same exact number of calories, but obviously different macros to those calories. And they're going to measure the, these people's metabolism and see, does their metabolism change? So he's already done a couple of studies that have been published in some of the best journals showing that when you're on one of these diets, your metabolism is improved by being on those kind of things. So coming back to your question, though, so research-wise, I want to do that. But clinically, I'm, the markers that I'm measuring um, uh, which are crude markers, but they're still markers of metabolism. So I'm weighing people and seeing, are you losing weight? Are you gaining weight? Are you maintaining? Um, I do measure blood glucose levels and blood ketone levels for, for most of my patients, especially the ones doing the diet. Um, and then I, I check all sorts of other metabolic markers. So you know, the criteria for metabolic syndrome, for instance, so these are clinically available. And the, the criteria for metabolic syndrome is, you know, high blood pressure, um, high triglycerides, low HDL. I want to point out for everybody who, you know, the American Heart Association and other people come after LDL all the time. LDL is not actually part of metabolic syndrome. It's not one of the markers for metabolic syndrome, but, um, but those are markers, and then you can you know, measure their obesity or their waist circumference, and uh, you can measure their level of insulin resistance in the form of blood glucose. Um, that, I mean, that's the crudest, easiest way to measure it on a clinical level. And um, so I'm measuring those types of things in my patients periodically, and by and large across the board, um, everybody's parameters are getting better. The, the, the measurement that I rely on most, um, there's, there's, there's something about it that I, I really believe is, is blood pressure. I think blood pressure is a really, is a window into somebody's metabolic health. Um, it's, a, it's an easily available test. You can get it at a Walmart or a Walgreens. You, 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 you can certainly get it at your doctor's office. But if somebody's got high blood pressure, something's wrong. And um, when their blood pressure is low and like in a good way, and they're not lightheaded or dizzy or any other symptoms of low blood pressure, but it's just a healthy low blood pressure and their pulse is low, that if I had to choose one marker of metabolic health that's easily accessible, that's the one I would choose is uh, blood pressure and pulse. Um, of course, 
endurance athletes, like people who run 100 miles, they have really, really good blood pressure and really low pulses. But, um, but the rest of us can achieve those too without like a lot of exercise. And, uh, you know, and usually when people are overweight or obese, when people have cardiovascular disease, when people are diabetic, it's usually high. And um, so, uh, so those are the kinds of things I'm using clinically with patients in my office. And then the big thing is I'm always just asking them about symptoms. And although I have checklists and I have screening tools, at the end of the day, it's a really common sense thing. Like, hey, those symptoms that brought you into my office, are they getting better? Um, uh, how's your life going? Have you done anything interesting in the past week? And for somebody who's like, had crippling anxiety for years when they come in and they tell me, Oh, you know, things are about the same, but, but I did go out with some friends for the first time in 10 years. And, and, uh, and, and I actually kind of had a fun time. I'm, I'm always like, Oh, okay. Nothing's different, but you just like did this monumental thing that you were completely unable to do for 10 years. So, and so I'm, so I, I take everything I can get as hints and clues about whether somebody's getting better or not. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I've pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band, it, uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what their goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed, and that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. It definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like bicep curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Hey, Chris, one thing you had me thinking about when you were talking about Ludwig's experiment with like the three different diet cohorts over three months and, you know, ultimately we'll, we'll hopefully answer some questions with that is like when I think of, just where we got today with dietary like recommendations. The biggest problem I see is it seems like what we did is we took the government and we had them pick a single winner. And that kind of forms a narrative that isn't necessarily entirely true. Whereas I would be interested if like, let's say Ludwig's experiment ends up unveiling that all three of those work quite well. Uh, would, what are your thoughts about like, rather than the government saying like, okay, here's your, standard American diet, well formulated, keep it within balance, blah, 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 all that stuff saying, here's like, say five approaches that we've found work quite well. Uh, now you need to find the one of those five that is most sustainable for you long-term. 
so that people kind of have options as opposed to this direct, this is what you should do. And if you do anything else, you're wrong. That type of mindset. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I, I, I think, um, you know, diet is a, it's a complicated thing and it, it certainly depends on a person's physiology and, you know, what they were born with, what they're doing in their life, what they've been through, their current weight. I mean, all sorts of things affect a person's metabolism. Um, and, and then there's this other added element of people's preferences and their tastes and their cravings. And there's another element of what's affordable. Like if you're on food stamps, you might, you know, you certainly can't be carnivore with free range, organic, everything like that's just, that's not going to happen. That's unaffordable for that person. Um, and then there's social, there are social factors that weigh in on diet and, you know, depending on what country you live in or what state you live in or what part of the state you live in and who's in your family and who are your friends and do you get together with them and hang out and, um, the social part of eating is, it's a real thing. It, 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 as much as, you know, I, 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 I kind of get the whole, I've, I've been at a point where I was like, you know, that doesn't matter. You know, you just, everybody needs to suck it up. They just need to do what's healthy for them and the, like not give in to social pressure and tell everybody you're eating this way and leave them alone. And, but that's a hard thing to do, honestly, especially if you want to have friends, especially if you want to have people over, or you want to go out to dinner with them. When you're always the one who's like, oh, I can't eat at that restaurant. Oh, I can't eat at that restaurant. Oh, I, I, they don't have anything I can eat. It, 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 it takes a toll on your social life and it takes a toll in people's minds about who you are. And so all of those, all of those factors end up playing a role. And I think at the end of the day, you're absolutely right that we should have a range of options. They shouldn't include obvious options that are probably unhealthy for everyone. So eating fast food every day, you know, and supersizing all your portions, that's clearly not good for anybody. Um, eating a ton of processed junk food, not good for anybody. Um, and if somebody can produce some good studies that show that eating that junk food, and I mean like randomized controlled trials, I don't mean this wishy-washy epidemiologic stuff where you can slice and dice and you can pick your samples and you can pick, like, that's the problem with epidemiologic data is that it's all, it's all a, it's, it's a big joke it, because people pick and choose what studies and what populations and what everything they want to, you know, include, but um, but at the end of the day, I, I do actually think, I think young kids who are growing and who need to be growing, they probably do need a lot more dairy than adults do because their bones are growing. They need calcium. They need calcium from something. Um, I think, uh, I think that, you know, a lot of people do, there are clearly people who say they're doing great on a vegan or vegetarian diet. And, you know, I would want to do a reality check with them and really see, but if, if they feel great, if their metabolic markers are good, 
especially some of these people who've come out recently, you know, some of the performance athletes who are like, I eat vegetarian and look at me perform and I'm, I'm good. This is working for me. I'm kind of like, this is a free country. Who, who am I to stand in your way? Who am I to say that you can't eat that way or you shouldn't eat that way? Or, and the reality from a physician standpoint is who am I to say that that's not good? Like if it's really working for them and their health is good and their performance is good and they're feeling reasonably good, sure, go ahead, do that. If that changes at some point, if those people develop nutritional deficiencies or if something changes, then obviously time to change strategy, time to change course. And I know what Sean wants to say on this probably, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit of a politician on this one and just be like, hey, if it's working for you, awesome. That's great. But the, the common sense, again, let's take a big common sense look around the United States of America. And when we take a big common sense look around the United States of America, whatever people are doing is not working for the majority of people. It is, it is a crisis. It's, it's a major crisis. Yeah, indeed, that, that, that's clearly the case. I mean, most people, you, you, go, you, you just get out in public and you see the metabolic disasters that are walking around. And, you know, and surprisingly, I'm not disagreeing with you on the fact that, yeah, you should be able to eat whatever you want. If you're an adult, make up your own mind. If it works, it works. You know, I would, you know, I would say that probably the, the number of elite level athletes that find that going to a plant-based diet, improving their performance is, is pretty minimal. In fact, we're seeing pretty good evidence of the exact opposite happening. They generally see a decline in performance after a period of time. But I want to sw switch back to another topic, if you don't mind, uh, Chris. Um, I, I know you've talked about metabolic health and its association with mental health disorders. Do you see that there's a role, and this is a topic that has gotten a lot of interest lately, and we start talking about the health of the gut, and some people will talk about uh, I know another fellow in your part of the woods, uh, Alessio Faisano, uh, is, is, you know, has got a thought that a lot of diseases, particularly autoimmune diseases, and there's some people that think that mental health disease may even have an autoimmune component, but it originates with problems with, you know, either gut function, gut permeability. Some people say microbiome. Do you have any thoughts on that particular topic? So great question. Um, I have lots of thoughts on it. Uh, in a nutshell, I would say that the evidence is pretty clear that the gut microbiome in particular um, does play a role in most metabolic disorders and interestingly, most mental disorders. And uh, that's, again, further supports my contention that there's a link between them at least. Um, the so what we know about the gut microbiome, for people who don't kind of know this area, it, uh, so, you know, you have, we have about 100 trillion things in our guts. Um, so there are bacteria, viruses, fungus things. I mean, there are all sorts of things in our guts. Hopefully you don't have any snakes or worms or anything in there, but, uh, but those even come to pass sometimes. But, uh, um, so we have all these things in our gut and whenever we eat, well, it doesn't matter what you eat, whenever we eat, they get first dibs. And so they eat, they eat the food that we're eating and they end up having waste products, but they also make all sorts of things. They make hormones, 
They make neurotransmitters. They make these things called neuropeptide. There are these neuropeptides, there are all sorts of things. And they release them. So they, you know, they're in your gut. They eat something and they spit something out. Well, that something that they just spit out is now in your gut. And guess what happens to it? It gets absorbed. So your bloodstream absorbs it. It goes through your gut into your bloodstream and then it travels through your body, affecting every organ, including your brain. And we know that there are neurotransmitters and all sorts of uh, chemicals that these microbes can produce that affect metabolism and that can affect brain function, they affect heart function, they affect a lot of things. Um, the challenge right now is, so, so we know that that's true. And there's a lot of the research, a lot of the research on the ketogenic diet in particular, especially over the last two years, has strongly suggested that it's, you know, one group of researchers who published in a really, a, a really prominent journal, they, their main argument was that the primary mechanism of action of the ketogenic diet is a change in the gut microbiome. That it, uh, it specifically changes the, the, the bacteria in your gut and that that resulted in an anti-seizure effect. Now those researchers actually pinned it down to two different bacteria and they tested each bacteria independently and neither one produced any effect. So you had to have these exact two bacteria in your gut and then you got the mice got a little bit of an anti-seizure effect. Um, so jump to the chase. People have already tested these two bacteria in humans. It doesn't do shit. So <laughs> mice are different than humans and mice bacteria in their guts are different than human you know, gut bacteria. And so the, the big like billion dollar question right now that nobody knows the answer to is, well, of these 100 trillion different microorganisms, which ones are the bad ones? Which ones are the good ones? And, and then this, this recent study suggested that it's not even good or bad. It's like the right combination in the right ratio. Like you got to have these two in this proportion and then you get the like magical effect. And so we're, we're probably many years if not several decades away from actually knowing which probiotic should people take, which prebiotic should people take? Should we be taking some kind of a, you know, an uh, antibiotic to kill off these bad bacteria? Like nobody knows. Um, there's one tiny study. So we've, we've got a lot of studies of these, um, We've got a lot of studies of uh, probiotics and most of them have been negative. So most of them, they've given probiotics to people and they don't do anything. Um, there's one very small study in people with bipolar disorder, coming back to mental health, that found that people who took a specific probiotic were less likely to be hospitalized. It didn't cure them. The people weren't saying like, oh, I feel so much better now. It's just they were less likely to be hospitalized over the next like one or two years or something like that. 
Um, and so I think, unfortunately, I think it's a hot area of research. I think it's a real thing. I think the microbes in your gut do affect your gut permeability. I think the function of your gut cells also affects the gut permeability. And, um, and could those things be playing a role? They could be. I mean, there are a lot of people out there, you know, talking about leaky gut syndrome. It's not really recognized by the mainstream medical community right now. But, um, but increasingly, we're finding that, uh, that the, the gut is kind of leaky or more, uh, you know, permeable. Um, we also know the blood-brain barrier gets more permeable with age. You know, the blood-brain barrier is supposed to keep a lot of stuff out of the brain. And as people get older, it gets leaky. We, we know that with certainty. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, I think we're a long way from having any definitive answers. Everybody wants to go and take a probiotic and somehow fix themselves. I, you know, I, and I, I know a lot of people who are out there selling probiotics and they're saying, oh, I've got a probiotic for you. It'll fix whatever ails you. Like if you've got, oh, you got Parkinson's disease, I got a probiotic for you. Oh, you, you, you're overweight, I got a probiotic for you. I got, I got this version for you. And, you know, and of course they're making a good buck off that. Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen convincing evidence that anybody knows the magic combination of probiotics that are going to solve a lot of problems. Yeah, that's, for the day. It, that's interesting. We've had that come up on a few other podcasts too. And we actually had a uh, Dr. Stacy Sims on who's done a little work in that, in that world. And, and her advice was more or less like um, those things are good, but since we don't really know, enough about it yet you're best off getting it via whole foods and things like that where you would find them naturally which which would make sense i guess to begin with because if you've disrupted that in one one shape or form uh, it was probably because something was removed or added or whatever you did with your diet that impacted that so maybe start back with that to fix it rather than you know throwing a whole bunch of stuff up against the wall and hoping one part of it sticks yeah, no, I, I agree. And, um, and like I said, the, I mean, there's pretty good evidence that the ketogenic diet, we, we know that any change in diet, it doesn't matter what, mm -hmm. if you start eating five apples a day, it, that's going to change your gut microbiome because some of your microbes are going to like apples more than others. If you start eating, you know, extra olive oil every day, that's going to change your gut microbiome because some bacteria can thrive on fats and others can't. And so it's always going to be changing the ratio. So any dietary intervention is going to change your gut microbiome. The, the, the billion dollar question is whether that's a good change, a bad change, or a neutral change. Um, so at the end of the day, you just got to be pragmatic. Like if I, I will say this, a word of caution on probiotics is that I've had two patients myself who were dramatically improved on a ketogenic diet. They were losing weight, but more importantly, their psychiatric symptoms were markedly better. And both of them, they had nothing to do with each other. They actually lived in different states. Both of them independently started a probiotic. They screened it to make sure it was a low carb probiotic, but they both started a probiotic and both of them within 24 hours got much worse. Um, their ketone levels plummeted. 
their glucose levels skyrocketed and they symptomatically got a lot worse. And since then I've talked with, you know, I, I talked with one ketogenic dietitian who works in an epilepsy center and I shared that story with her and she was like, oh my God, I had this little kid who had been stable on the ketogenic diet for like a year or two, no seizures, none at all. And his parents, you know, heard this thing, probiotics, they're all the rage, everybody take one. They put their kid on a probiotic and within 24 hours, he had what's called status epilepticus, which means he was seizing uncontrollably and no matter what medicine they gave him, it wouldn't stop his seizures. She was like, ever since I've seen that, I'm telling all my patients, stay the F away from probiotics. Like, don't, don't go there because, you know, who knows what you're taking? Like, it's, it's a bacteria, but there's no evidence that it's a good one or a bad one. Clearly for these three people, they were bad ones. Yeah, Chris, I am, I am wholeheartedly not particularly enamored with uh, probiotics pre at this point. I just, I just think it's, it's a, a, a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, just speculation and profit making at this point. So I'm not too, too thrilled about that. But Chris, I unfortunately have got to jump on a conference call. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, I think we should do a, a round two, particularly as you get more, more information, you know, hopefully some of these clinical st studies get going because this is such a fascinating topic and it's wonderful to see more and more physicians that are adopting this sort of, you know, objective results-based you know, we talk about evidence-based, but then we look at the evidence and it's, it's, the evidence is pretty weak. And so I think we, we start looking at what, what evidence do I want to use? I want to use results I'm getting my patients. And I think that is what we should really be, uh, you know, you know, start listening to our patients instead of listening to perhaps drug manufacturers and other people that have vested interests in, uh, you know, their, their particular uh, research, which, which we know is, is often, uh, skewed in some way or another but it's been a pleasure zach any 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 last minute words chris tell us where, where folks can find you online or how they can follow you i know you don't want the twitter the twitter trolls harassing <laughs> you like they harass me all the time but you know at the end of the day it's good to get out there in public and and, and let more people know what you're doing though it is no thank th so thank you both sean and zach for having me on and um so if, if people do want to learn more i am on twitter so at chris palmer md uh, you can find me there. And I have a website, uh, Chris Palmer, MD, all one word.com. And uh, if you go there, I've got a lot of stuff on the ketogenic diet for psychiatric disorders. You know, I'm, I'm getting contacted by from people all over the world who are wanting to do this thing. And, um, and the, the, the quick word of caution that I'm just going to put out there. So I'm treating people with real disorders. Like these are life-threatening things. People are psychotic. They, they get agitated. They go into rage attacks. They try to kill themselves. They do all that stuff. And, you know, that's kind of like not a do-it-yourself kind of disorder. Like <laughs> you, you, you kind of need some help and support and uh, you deserve some help and support. You, sh you shouldn't have to do this one on your own. And so I'm putting together a list of clinicians who are uh, interested in um, helping people do this because I've been turning people away for months. I, I am completely filled and can't take any more patients, but um, I'm trying to put together a list of clinicians who are available to help. So tr just trying to get people access to this treatment. Awesome, Chris. Well, thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. And like Sean said, we'd love to have you back down the road when when you got some more stuff to share with us, uh, I'll link your, your Twitter and website to the, 
to the show notes so our listeners can go check out more of your work. But uh, otherwise, have a great rest of the day. Awesome. Thank you both. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.